The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Season Finale, Part 3, Dear Donna. Tuesday, January 12th, 1993, 6am, you awake to your alarm. You hit snooze and go back to sleep on the sofa bed you share with your boyfriend Rod Franciscovich who had arrived at 1 a.m. to crawl into bed and make love to you. 6.15. Your alarm goes off again. You rise to the scent of freshly brewed coffee, brewing in your new automatic coffee maker, and prepare for the day. You try not to wake Rod. 6.30. You give Linda Pig, your co-worker and friend from the Elks Lodge, a daily wake-up call. 7 a.m. You get your three-year-old daughter Justine up and ready for daycare. 8 a.m. Dressed in a short leather jacket, blue flowered skirt and top, as you never wore heavy clothes, not even in the winter, you slip on your black heels and carry a small leather clutch you had received for Christmas. You glance in the mirror and look charming, quaint, but modern. It's the 90s, and that's what your estranged husband John Tompkins always called you after all, a 90s woman, too good for the farm. You shrug it off and wake Rod gently, only to let him know you left him the spare key on the sewing machine beside the door. You go out into the cold, put Justine into her car seat, and drive her to daycare. 
You drop Justine off at the YWCA. That stubborn hair on the top of her head, fighting gravity as always, resists your saliva and springs tall. 8.30. You arrive at the National Bank of Canton where you work as an assistant to the trust officer, David Haynes. You greet your boss, David, whom you've known since way back. You'd met in 85 on David's first day in town. A charming man. You went out for drinks a time or two. You loved to talk, and you finally decided he was not entirely your type. But he did hire you on at the bank a couple of years back, and you still offer him that warm smile. But David sees beyond. You are not so chipper today. You blame your mood on both the fact that you had to cancel a dentist appointment and that the second secretary had called in sick again, doubling your workload. And you snap at Bank Vice President Max Scott and leave him feeling quite disrespected. 9.30. Rod wakes up, folds up the sofa bed, and puts the cushions back on the couch. He then folds up the pink blanket, a cheap comforter with flowers on one side. You had bought it at Walmart to save money. He places it where you always do, along with the regular bed pillows on the end of John's daybed in the kitchen, which you had taken off the farm. Rod takes a shower snoops around your medicine cabinet and discovers the spermicide he had suspected you had applied last night. Ever since the pregnancy scare that sent you calling up your sister Susan in tears, you've done your best to be careful. You have decided firmly you don't want another baby. No, not after John. Not after all he put you through in the collapse of your marriage. 9.50 Rod makes coffee with the new coffee maker he had given you for Christmas, which sits on your kitchen sink. 10.15. Rod leaves your apartment, locks up, and heads home. 11 a.m. Your temporary upstairs neighbor, Jim Schlanigan, who you only know in passing, awakes to the hot water radiators, popping, and making a loud, unusual racket. He gets up off Clark Hogan's couch, where he's been sleeping for a couple of months now, and he makes coffee and gets ready for work. 11.35. You arrive home for your lunch break and call Rod's house, but his roommate, Scott Roop, tells you that Rod is across the street at his brother's house doing laundry. You feel comfortable with Scott, and the two of you chat for eight minutes on the phone, but you know you could talk to him for ages. 1 a.m. Back at work, you tell your friend Mary Munson when asked, yes, you are happy with Rod, and how well the two of you have been getting on. You tell her about the coffee maker Rod had given you for Christmas, and that it turns on automatically each morning, and you gush over how much you love to wake up to the scent of fresh brew. Oh, and you mention Rod had also gifted you a boombox that plays CDs. And yes, Terry Haynes is still hounding you, and actually, he called you on Saturday to tell you his ex-wife was going back with her lover, and that he still loved you and wanted to get back together with you. Terry had given you yet another card. But yes, you let Mary know that Terry beat his ex-wife, and besides, you have seen him with his ex out and about, and you know that he is lying to you, and that they are still living together. You know Terry is an absolute mess, and he tried to kill himself two or three weeks earlier. On July 3rd, or so you believe, you tell Mary, by hooking up a hose from his car to his house. Still, it was awfully nice of him, you mention, to replace the ring you lost on your motorcycle ride with him to the Spoon River Valley with a gold 1938 Canton High School class ring with the engraved initials CJH. A stranger you don't know, but no, of course it will never mean the same, not nearly as much as your late mother's had. You haven't taken it off for years after all, sleeping in all your jewelry, 
which always drives your sister Susan up a wall. Now lost in the Spoon River Valley, you muscle your might and keep moving forward. That's all your mother would have asked of you after all. You also talk to a co-worker whom you refer to as your Cuba mother, Marilyn Riley. She asked you, as she always does, how things are going with the divorce and John. Marilyn always asks because she went to high school with John in Cuba, and you tell her that you're upset because John does not pay much attention to Justine, and that he is always mad about one thing or another. Marilyn tells you again that she has been worried about you, ever since she saw that piece of the door frame that snapped off the wall when John struck it beside your head. That chunk of wood you brought into the bank to show everyone evidence of John's rage and to justify you leaving him. You also talk about how John was still calling the bank a lot and you remind Marilyn to tell John you're busy with work or in the bathroom when he calls. You tell her the next time John wants to make plans to take Justine to McDonald's, you want to meet him somewhere because you don't want him in your house because you don't know how out of control he will get. Again, you mention that you really like Rod, but you are not in a big hurry to get too involved with anyone. No, not after John. You now talk with Miss Hazel Brown, whom you had once been very close to. But now that Hazel is getting up there in age, she feels the two of you have somewhat grown apart, but you always catch up with Hazel when things are slow around the bank. After all, you need all the friends you can find, as many of the older ladies at the bank don't care for you much. But they're just jealous that you're young, beautiful, and intelligent, and they say behind your back that you show too much leg, a bit too risque but they are just upset that you get all the attention from the guys. And the truth is, they feel by their age that they should have your job. You tell Hazel that she will never believe it, but John had the nerve to send you an anniversary card. Yes, even after everything he had put you through. And you tell her your side of the story. John told Justine the other day that he would return all of her Christmas presents if she didn't give him a kiss goodbye. Justine had been tired, and the three-year-old didn't want to carry her presents into the house from the car, and that really pissed John off. You tell Hazel, you're sick to death of John making plans to see Justine, and then just not showing up, or he would be too late. Absolutely not, would you let your little one go out with John at such a late hour? And you make sure to stop and talk to Sheila Wilson too, telling her John is being an ass again about the divorce, and you're very anxious to get the paper signed. It has been long enough, you say, and that you are tired of him always making a fuss over money. And when Sheila asks you if you've ever considered getting back together with John, you look at her like she is crazy and say, Absolutely not. Making it clear, saying, I don't love him anymore. You are always talking about your private life with your co-workers, and this has led people to gossip about you all the time. About the guys that you date, like the UPS guy, Terry Haynes. About Rod, and even about David Haynes, whom word has it the two of you have been having an affair. And when you were spotted hugging David and kissing him on the cheek in his office, after he helped you save a few bucks on your taxes, it had really thrown fuel on the fire. 4 p.m. People begin to arrive at Donnie Bull's girlfriend, Rochelle Hillmeyer's home, with cases of beer for a get-together Donnie is throwing. Donnie has been living at the home with Rochelle, her two daughters, and her granddaughter for a few weeks now. You had met Rochelle the same night you met Donnie for the first time at the barbecue roundup when you had gone there for dinner with your best bud, Iona Price. Rochelle was the one who stared daggers at you while you talked to Donnie about buying his sofa bed. And you gave Donnie that look of your own with those eyes that light up every room you enter. Remember, Donnie delivered it too, he and his buddies, in the glow of a big lighter on a dark Halloween night. Do you recall you left him a spare key in the mailbox? rolled in $75 cash, and to Donnie, you'd taken quite a liking, 
those manly muscles and that thick head of hair. The way he gazes at you from across the room with those warm brown eyes. You'd even try it on your Mickey Mouse Halloween costume for him. And oh, how he adores you, Donna, and always wants you so badly. But you remember Iona's warning. Never let that man in your apartment when you and Justine are there alone. Five PM. You wave goodbye to David, and he suspects nothing out of the ordinary, or so he would go on to tell investigators as you leave work for the day. Five fifteen. You arrive at the Elks Lodge where you work part time as a waitress. You had bartended for a while. But the higher-ups at the bank thought it might interfere with your work there. In other words, they thought it would shine a negative light on the reputation of the bank. You only work shifts on the weekends, and tonight you have just stopped by as you often do to socialize with bartender and friend, lend a pig, drink a can of Miller Lite, and buy a pack of Marlboros out of the sight of prying eyes. The bank doesn't approve of smoking, and neither does your father, but what they don't know would not hurt them, right? But the cigarette machine is out of Marlboros, so you buy a pack of Salem Lights which will do for now. You've cheered up finally, or so you seem, and you and Linda talk about your plans for your 31st birthday party to be thrown here at the Elks next week on January 22nd. Linda asks how things are going at work, and you tell her all about those weirdos and spooks at the bank. You also tell Linda that you have been stressed because John doesn't want to pay child support anymore, and that you have been hiding money away for an emergency, putting the cash in a separate account John doesn't have access to. So hush. It's a secret, but you've already let it slip to Terry Haynes, and Terry tells everyone everything. You tell Linda that you had decided to settle the divorce for $10,000 in child support, just to get the damn thing over with because you're tired of John coming over late at night and harassing you. And Linda tells you Terry has been badmouthing you again, and you say it's just Terry being Terry because Terry is jealous of Rod, and to hell with Terry anyways, he has been stealing hundreds of dollars from the Elks. 5.30 p.m. You pick up Justine at the YWCA, and Barb Palmer tells you that Justine has been cranky and tired all day. As you strap Justine into her car seat, that stubborn piece of hair sticks right up on the top of her head. You tell Barb that you will make a doctor's appointment for Justine, as you're worried it might have something to do with her having just got over the chicken pox. The weather has turned, and freezing rain now falls from the sky. Meanwhile, at Chubb's liquor store, Linda Rose is running the cash register and would go on to tell investigators that she didn't remember seeing you come in at all any time that day to buy a large bottle of Canadian Miss Whiskey and that she would have noticed because not many people purchased that large of a bottle of that brand of whiskey. 6 p.m. David and his wife, Sarah Haynes, are at home preparing a birthday party for their one-year-old child and David's father, who shares the same birthday. But David's father calls and cancels as the roads will be too icy for him to return home that night. David is videotaping the youngest of the two children's first birthday as Sarah now finds herself preparing Cornish hens for just the two of them. David had not thought to invite you and Justine, but even though you and Sarah grew quite close when your mom was dying of cancer, word has gotten around that she is jealous of you and David, and the rumors of the affair haven't helped any. 620 you and Justine arrive home and get inside out of the cold. You set a large bottle of Canadian Miss Whiskey, a bottle of schnapps, and a jug of apple cider on the kitchen sink beside the coffee maker. In ten minutes flat, the two of you are out cold in the warmth of the radiator heat for a quick nap. 6.30. Terry Haynes arrives home from work. 
gets cleaned up, and makes a quick dinner before heading to the Moose Lodge for drinks and a game of pitch. Donnie's childhood best friend, the bearded and long-haired David Nell, arrives at Rochelle's with Douglas Brody, who had given him a ride. A game of Blitz, a card game like 21, but the 31 is already in action. But the beer is running low, so Donnie and Nell make a beer run to Twins Liquors in Rochelle's car, a brown 1973 Chevrolet that David Nell calls the Tuna Boat. Donnie and Nell return to the party with a case of Michelob Longnecks, which Donnie's cousin keeps on sale at Twins for $12 a case for the month of January. The two join Richard Ledger, Jeff Ashley, and his girlfriend Michelle Brooks, and Jeff Bennett, who had since arrived, and are playing dice for cash in the kitchen. And come to think of it, all Donnie's friends are bearded with long hair. Seven thirty. Your boyfriend Rod Franciscovich and his brother Anthony go to Walmart in separate cars for laundry soap, fabric softener, light bulbs, and a new CD case for his growing collection. Meanwhile, John calls you from the shop on his dad's farm to avoid those pesky long-distance fees, and says he wants to talk with Justine, but you know it's just another ploy to get to you. You tell John that Justine is in the bath and to call back later, so John now calls his girlfriend Sheila Martindale. While back at the party, as the guys play five-point pitch, Rochelle and Jeff's girlfriend Michelle maneuver the icy rose to Twins Liquors for another case of Michelob Longnecks, $12 even. Meanwhile, your estranged husband gets off the phone with his new fling Sheila and goes grocery shopping. 8.30. Rod and Anthony arrive back at Rod's house. As Rod has suggested, you had gotten Justine into her pajamas and you try to get her into bed early tonight. Lately, Rod has been urging you to be slightly firmer with Justine, as you worry her whining and crying may drive him away. She is indeed a bit spoiled, but Justine is your heart and soul. 9 p.m. As Doug Brody and David Nell return from the third beer run that night, and a pit stop for a pack of generic brand smokes at Sitco, Doug decides to head on home, seeing he does not like to stay out too late when he must go to work early the following morning. The others, however, do not follow his example. 9.10. John calls back and again asks to talk to Justine, but you inform John that Justine is already fast asleep. John keeps you on the phone for four to five minutes, and you agree to speak the following day to make plans to meet so he can take Justine to McDonald's. Before getting off the phone, John asks you to go in and give Justine a hug and a kiss from him, and John will later tell investigators that he had gotten no indication there was anyone else present in your apartment, and as the two of you hang up, John assumes you will soon be off to bed by 10, 10.30 at the latest, since you have told John that you've been going to bed earlier and earlier in order to avoid his calls. 9.30. The surrounding neighbors, one by one, begin to go to bed, but not one of them sees or hears or suspects anything suspicious, nor your brilliant porch light, which is not yet illuminated at this hour. Meanwhile, John is watching a basketball game he had recorded earlier in the evening with his brand new VCR. 9.35 You have mixed yourself a cider and schnapps, turn on the TV, and call Rod to tell him what's on. A cartoon the two of you had enjoyed together over the weekend, written and stimpy, and you share a laugh. Rod then asks you what you did after work, and you tell him you and Justine had taken a nap together, saying, It's so nice just to do nothing. But your mood sours as you tell Rod you think you will have a tough day tomorrow, 
because the second secretary will probably call in sick again. You ask what Rod is doing, and he tells you that he, his brother, and Scott are just hanging out, listening to music, and drinking screwdrivers in the kitchen. And you tell him you have just made yourself a drink, too, and that you had picked up the schnapps and cider after work, along with a large bottle of Southern Comfort whiskey. Rod doesn't mention it, but he finds this unusual, seeing you never keep liquor in the house, and it seems like a pricey purchase for you to have made on a random Tuesday night. You tell Rod that John had just called, complaining that Justine looked too thin when he saw her over the weekend, and that he was pissed that the tape for her Teddy Ruxpin bear was missing, and he fumed that you had let your life insurance drop. Oh, and this guy came into the bank today and told someone that he was interested in you. What's his name? asked Rod, feeling the jealousy turn in his belly. You say you asked around and heard it was some guy whose ex-wife is dating John. Yes, the same, Sheila Martindale. Rod can't help himself but ask if you are interested and you say of course not, and that you think it's weird. Rod has also been urging you to commit to him, and to let him know when any guys come on to you, as you had just loyally done so. Nine forty-six. You and Rod get off the phone, and he returns to the kitchen with Anthony, who has made a pot of coffee and turned on the Discovery Channel. Around 10 p.m., Sarah Haynes goes to bed, Though upon later being questioned by investigators, she cannot be sure of the exact time, saying she has a terrible memory. She leaves David to finish watching the end of the ball game on television. 10.15. Gas station employee Sue Ann Harris finishes her shift at Wareco Station, just a block west from your apartment, just down Railroad Street. You know, that road that was nothing more than a gravel alleyway running parallel to the railroad tracks, just across the yard from your door. Sue Ann notices nothing unusual as she drives off into the winter storm. 10.30. Terry Haynes has had enough of playing pitch at the Moose Lodge, where he sat beside Harry Wagner and finishes up one last drink at the bar before heading home. Sometime between 10.30 and 11, Sarah would later estimate for investigators. David goes to bed, but Sarah cannot be sure, as she herself was fast asleep. 11 p.m. Out in Cuba, John watches late-night television before bed in your former farmhouse. But you don't seem to miss the farm at all, and though John calls you an East Coast snob, how you miss being back East with your family you love so dearly, with whom you have always been very close. Though you had just seen them at Christmas and showed everyone at work the photos, you still can't shrug off that terrible feeling of which your father had left you with, telling you he wished you'd finally get your act together, find a good job, and a decent man. You light up a cigarette and smoke it freely. No more taking long walks down the street just to sneak a smoke. And that's one reason why you love it here in the Midwest. You can be yourself after all. Well, besides those spooks at the bank who still tell you what you can and cannot do. But to hell with them as you finish your drink. 11.30. Rod's brother Anthony walks back across the street to his home for the night. Midnight, Wednesday the 13th. A neighbor across the street from you, Lucinda Hitchcock, notes that your glaring porch light has been turned on, but gazing out of her window, she notices no other activity around the house. About now, another neighbor, Amelia Scott, makes her way to bed as well, and would go on to tell investigators that she never saw nor heard anything unusual outside of her home. Nothing but the icy wind blowing in the night. That same chilly breeze that sucks away your smoke as you have cracked open the window because that damn radiator is unruly. 
Rochelle Hillmeyer also goes to bed, as her two daughters and her eldest daughter's boyfriend are already shut in their rooms, leaving Donnie and David Nell to stay up talking and drinking more beers alone. All the other guests have left for the night, and Donnie is thrilled to have won $57 cash playing cards with the boys. Though Donnie has an IQ in the lower 2 percentile, he's awfully good at gambling. 1 a.m. Rod's roommate Scott Roop leaves Rod in the kitchen and goes to bed in the basement but does not hear Rod go upstairs to his own bedroom. Rod would later state to investigators that there was no reason he would have gone to see you that night. And in a follow-up interview, I don't think I saw her that night. Amongst a barrage of changed dates and times, as to the last time he had seen you, and the last time you had made love. 110. Jim Schlanigan, who has been staying in the upstairs apartment of the old Victorian home, with Clark Hogan for around three and a half months now, whom you only know in passing, has just pulled into the driveway from his second shift job at a meat packing plant in Beardstown, the same plant Donnie Bull had previously worked at before quitting due to an injury. He parks his car at the rear of the apartment as he usually does. He goes upstairs using the back entrance and notices his roommate Clark has not yet arrived, and Clark will go on to tell investigators that he had heard nor seen anything out of place or unusual, and no. Not a single non-tenant vehicle parked in the drive. 1.30. Clark Hogan finally arrives home, notices nothing, and he and Jim stay up and crack open a few beers, Budweiser, and Bush. 3 a.m. Having finished their beers, the two go to bed. Clark to his room, and Jim to the couch. Again, both men would claim that neither heard any disturbances coming from any of the lower apartments that night, nor those early morning hours. Between 3 and 3.30, Donnie Bull wakes Rochelle to ask her to use her car to take Nell home. But the two do not go directly there, opting to cruise the empty streets of Canton for a bit and drink a couple more beers that they had brought along. They stop at Harper's gas station on Chestnut for another pack of smokes, and in a later interview, Nell would add a few details to his story, claiming that they had driven by your apartment twice, each time Donnie saying, I really want to fuck Donna. But during trial testimony in 96, Nell would recant this claim, saying he only said what he thought the cops wanted to hear. 4 a.m. Gas station manager Drake Smith arrives at the Wareco station, again just a block to the west. You know Drake from when you used to go there to get coffee, but now you had your own brand new machine. Drake checks, unlocks, and turns on the tanks, which sit just north of the station, right along Railroad Street. Drake stops to take notice as the wind has died down, that it is one of those cold, quiet mornings that allows you to hear all the noises in the neighborhood. But he noticed nothing unusual, nor a brown 1989 Chevrolet parked down the gravel lane next to the milk plant, just catty corner across First Avenue from your apartment. 5 a.m. Donnie and Nell pull into Nell's parents' driveway and hang out for a few minutes while Donnie finishes his cigarette and the two gossip about all the girls in town they would like to hose. 5.30. Sarah Haynes' alarm clock goes off and she hits the snooze. Donnie leaves Nell's through an alleyway about this time and David enters the house quietly so as not to wake his parents. He watches TV for a bit before going to bed. 
Driving down South 5th, Donnie sees gas station manager Jeff Bennett arrive at the Yusko station. Jeff would go on to tell investigators he has never done anything social with Donnie, though he was at the card game at Rochelle's that night, according to both Donnie and Rochelle. As Donnie turns west and heads down Oak, he has a heavy foot on the icy street as he goes over the tracks too fast and slides into a curb. As he backs out of the snowbank, he notices the front driver's side tire is flat. Donnie pulls over to the side of the road at the intersection of 2nd and Oak, the sideboard scrapyard whose piles of rusted rubbish sit just behind your garage and just two blocks from Rochelle's home. He gets a spare tire and jack out of the trunk, a trunk in which Rochelle would tell investigators she kept no gas can, and he tries to jack up the car when the jack slips on the ice and whacks him in the leg. Donnie realizes the spare is also flat, and in pain and frustration, Donnie gets back into the car. After guzzling two dozen beers that night, the world begins to spin, and Donnie lies his head out the open window in the frigid air and passes out cold. 5.30. Sarah's alarm goes off again. She gets out of bed, takes a shower, and begins to get ready for work. Six a.m. The hour you usually hit the snooze button. Your upstairs neighbor, Linda Huggins, who lives directly above you, gets out of bed. She had not seen or heard any disturbances through the night, nor had she seen or heard anyone arrive at or depart from your apartment below. But early the evening before, she had listened to what sounded like a little girl giggling below. the time you usually get out of bed comes and goes. Across town, David Haynes gets out of his own bed. Back on 1st Avenue, Joseph Ferguson on his daily newspaper route notices your bright yellow porch light illuminating the entire south side of the house, and Joseph finds it odd because the light is never on at this hour. Otherwise, nothing else in the neighborhood captures Joseph's attention this morning. 6.30 you fail to give Linda Pig her daily wake-up call. 6.55 Sarah leaves five minutes late for Interstate Brands Bakery in Peoria, where she works as a supervisor for the nation's largest bakery, despite the icy roads, leaving David to wake up the kids and get them ready for the babysitter. 7 a.m. John steps out into the icy cold air as the wind picks back up and makes his way to the family farm for a long day of grinding feed. Things have been rocky on the farm. The business has been teetering on the brink of collapse ever since John beat up his uncle and threatened to murder his father, not to mention that romantic episode with the sheep in the barn. The family had been thinking of kicking John out of the farm business, or at the least, no longer letting him show sheep or have any contact with the animals. And that $100,000 note he had made you sign last year for that hog confinement barn didn't help things much. The whole Tompkins family has been up in arms about how the divorce settlement will affect the farm's survival, which by now had been in the family for generations. The Tompkins name has been long known to carry some weight in these parts, and John's father Ron hopes to keep it that way, even if it means John has to bite the bullet and find work as a hired hand on some different farm. Meanwhile, Your upstairs neighbor, Clark Hogan, who has lived in the house for about three years now, and whom you also know in passing, leaves for work, and just as he had not throughout the night, notices anything unusual on his way out the back entrance for Jarvis Welding. Pauline Newcomb, in the apartment next door, 
also the original homeowner before it was put into a trust with the bank, wakes up for an early morning hair appointment, but notices the streets are coated in ice and calls and cancels. Pauline would also state that she neither had nor seen anything throughout the night nor that early morning as she took a good look outside, though in the past she could often hear your television clearly through the wall. 7.30. Donnie's shift begins at Wright's Furniture, where he works as a delivery man, and where he had stored your sofa bed. Still, Donnie has not yet arrived, as he is currently being awoken by a man in a truck who has stopped when he saw Donnie's head hanging out the window to see if Donnie needed any help. Donnie tells him no, he's A-OK, and the man drives off, leaving Donnie to carry the flat spare tire to Phillips 66 on West Locust, two blocks to the west, and just across Oak from the Wareco station to get it patched and filled up. 7.40 Jacqueline Day arrives at her daughter Rochelle Hillmeyer's home and is angry with her daughter to see Donnie is out in her car. Jacqueline leaves with two children, taking one to the bus stop and the other to the high school across town, but not seeing Rochelle's car anywhere. 7.45 Terry Haynes picks up his father and the two head to the county seat of Lewistown. 8 a.m. Jacqueline stops at Brown Snappy Service on the town square for a cup of coffee and a greasy spoon. And Terry and his father arrive at Hilda's Pantry in Lewistown just in time for breakfast. Meanwhile, Hazel Brown arrives early at the bank and waits around until she can finally punch in at 8.23. 8.10. Coming from Presbyterian Church where she works as a cleaning lady, Cindy Nouse drives her blue 1991 Ford Fiesta past Pauline's, turns around in the parking lot of Manufacturing Services, and then parks on the east side of First Avenue in front of Pauline's, just south of the driveway. Cindy has always adored the old Victorian home and its minute details. She always takes a moment to take it all in when she has a chance. Cindy steps out onto the icy street, gets her cleaning supplies out of the back of the hatchback, and is met at the front porch door by Pauline. Across town, David has dropped the kids off at the sitter and arrives at the bank. 8.15 Co-worker Rob Havens comes downstairs to David's basement office to talk with him for four to five minutes, but hears no mention of you. 8.20. Back at Pauline's, Cindy Nouse carries out the garbage using the south side door of the apartment. The garbage cans are located south of the garage, but the trash has already been picked up this morning as the cans are empty. Cindy tosses the bags in the can, turns back, and observes the bedroom windows of your apartment, the windows to Justine's room. Meanwhile, Pauline is standing at the top of the stairs with the back door open and smells no smoke, and neither does Cindy. 8.30. The National Bank of Canton opens for business. Meanwhile, Donnie having thrown the spare on, and knowing Jacqueline would probably be at the house anytime soon, and would be pissed at him for having her daughter's car, decides to go to Usco on South 5th, where he usually gets a coffee and shoots the shit with station manager Jeff Bennett, who again would go on to claim to not really know Donnie well, though Donnie would often stop in to fuel up the Wright's furniture delivery truck and ask for a receipt. 8.35. At the bank, co-worker Sheila Wilson notices that you have not yet arrived to work with the money bags from the Chestnut Street ATM, as today is your day to pick up the drop. 8.40. As word gets around, employees grow concerned and begin to gossip, speculating why you have not yet arrived with the cash. Thoughts quickly turn to the likes of stories seen in cop dramas, as they consider the vast array of possibilities. 
Some suspect you had gotten fed up with the whole shebang and hightailed it out of town with the loot. Back on First Avenue, Cindy works her way from the rear bedroom of Pauline's apartment toward the front of the home. As she cleans, she works up a sweat as the apartment is hot, even for Pauline's standards, as she often keeps the heat cranked. But when Cindy opens the living room closet to get the vacuum cleaner, which sits under the stairs that lead to the upstairs apartment, the closet is ice cold, as if she had just stepped outside. However, no, she had not smelled any smoke. 8.45 Customer Mike Tucker arrives at the bank for a meeting with David. They talk business for a minute or two, and then socialize for another ten. At that time, no calls were made in or out, Mike would go on to state. Meanwhile, Sheila Wilson calls down to David's office, and his phone does in fact ring. And he does pick up, and she finally informs David that you have not arrived. And David says he will give you a call after he finishes up with Mike Tucker. 9 a.m. Carrie Haynes arrives at the Fulton County Courthouse to appear before a judge on a criminal matter. And Jacqueline Day heads to the bank to make a deposit. In the basement of the bank, co-worker Rick Clendenst is using the fax machine when Hazel Brown informs him that you have not shown up for work. David's meeting with Mike Tucker ends and David dials up your home phone. It rings four times before he receives the answering machine. When he notices it sounds distorted and slow, like it was melting, he would say. But David, curiously, does not leave a message and hangs up the phone. Supervisor Sheila Louver asks Sheila Wilson to call the YWCA daycare to ask if you have dropped off Justine yet. As Barb Palmer answers the phone, she tells Sheila that Justine is yet to arrive. Sheila also calls the Chestnut Street facility and is told the drop has not been picked up. So much for the hightailing it theory. Sheila calls David down in his office and informs him of the new developments, and David decides he will go check on you at your apartment. David would later go on to tell investigators that his first thought about what possibly could have gone wrong was a possible gas leak at the house. And he had every right to be concerned, seeing he had been the property manager at the time ever since the house had gone into a trust with the bank. However, in a follow-up interview, David would change his story, stating that his first thought was the divorce. 9.05 David goes upstairs and enters the office of Bank Vice President Max Scott and informs him of what is happening. He tells Max that he will go over and check on you and asks if Max wants to join him. Max sees no reason to tag along and allows David to go alone. 9.08 as Mike Tucker is on his way out of the bank, he hears David asking, as he throws on his new wool coat his wife had bought him for Christmas, $400, where's Donna? Has anyone seen Donna? And saying he was going to swing by your place. 9.10 David jumps in his truck and exits the icy lot for the six-block drive to your apartment. 9.12 Having finished cleaning the living room, Cindy goes to the back bedroom and tells Pauline she is done will return the following week. Pauline walks Cindy to the front porch door. Meanwhile, back at the bank, Max Scott decides to call you himself, but the phone just rings and rings with no melting machine answering. 9.15 As Cindy is putting her supplies back into her hatch back of her car, she sees a mustard yellow Toyota pickup truck with a white camper shell coming from the north and back into the driveway of the home, all the way to the garage in the back, where it parks behind your red Bonneville that is parked in the open garage. 
Cindy watches curiously as a man with dark hair and a mustache steps out of the truck wearing dark pants and a wool coat. She gets in her car and heads off to pick up her husband before going grocery shopping at Kroger's. David notices your red Bonneville parked in the garage and steps close enough to see there is no one in the car. He walks through the snow to your porch, where the light is still on, and rings the doorbell, later telling investigators he could not hear it from the outside. He opens the storm door and knocks hard on the door, but you do not answer, and he tries to peer in around the curtain you had hung in the door's large window. David can see nothing. He checks your door handle, and it feels shut and solid and locked. He steps off your porch, goes to the window just west of the door, and tries to see in there, but again, sees nothing. 9.20. Jonathan Schaefer and a friend drive down First Avenue on their way home from a class at Spoon River College to pick up Jonathan's wife, Carrie Schaefer. But where his wife Carrie babysits for Justine, Jonathan looks at the house at 365 as they pass by, but he sees nothing of interest happening at all. 9.22. Pauline is in her kitchen writing out checks for her visa card and a hospital bill when someone comes knocking. At first, Pauline believes Cindy may have forgotten something, but she answers the door to see her property manager, David, and is taken aback as he frantically asks she has seen you this morning, that you had never shown up for work, and that you will not answer your phone nor your door, and that your car is still in the garage with Justine's car seat in the back, and that he is worried about you. Pauline says she has not in fact seen you this morning, and with Pauline being the property's original owner, David asks if she may have a spare key to your apartment. Pauline tells him she does not think so, but she takes a good look nonetheless in an old vase and hands David a few random keys for him to try. 9.23 David returns, telling Pauline that none of the keys had worked and asks if he can use the phone, and he also asks for a phone book. As Pauline goes into the kitchen to get the phone book, David calls Hazel Brown at the bank to update her. Pauline returns with the phone book and begins flipping through the pages for the non-emergency number to the police department. David informs Pauline that he had seen a woman leaving her apartment and that he was surprised that she had company at such an early hour. Oh, that was Cindy, my cleaning lady, Pauline tells David as David dials up the non-emergency number for the police department. A dispatcher answers and David explains the problem with his missing secretary, you, and says that he would appreciate it if an officer could come down and check on your well-being. As David is about to hang up, he hears what sounds like a cane tapping on the wall, and the dispatcher hears David say, away from the phone to Pauline, something has happened. Hanging up the phone, David runs out of the house, but Pauline fails to see where he has disappeared to. 9.26 A woman arrives at the bank looking for you, and Hazel Brown tells her that you are not in, and the mysterious lady leaves, and no one knew her name nor recognized her face. Meanwhile, Pauline scurries around, unlocks the back door, thinking the police may want to enter, and exits to the front porch to await their arrival. 9.27 David sees the dial on the gas meter spinning around fast. He decides not to wait for the police, and spotting an air conditioner in the south side kitchen window, he decides to yank it out, and he is shocked to see heavy smoke roll out in two columns, one black and one gray. And in the heat of the traumatic moment, a moment of clarity allowed David to stop and take in the oddity of it all, as the columns of odd color rose high into the sky, only to be swept away by a gale-force wind, as he would go on to state in so many words. 928. 
David returns to your door and tears a small piece of metal from your screen door. He uses it to break open the window in the door. David reaches in to unlock the deadbolt, but must remove his hand to take off a glove. As he reaches back in and grasps the deadbolt, his right middle finger sears to the scolding brass. He kicks open the door to a room thick with smoke and loud crackling, and David takes two dangerous steps inside. Directly ahead of him, he sees red-hot flames and ambers, and slightly to his left, the glow of a bright red dome, three to four feet off the floor, engulfed in flames. David can feel the burn on his face. He stumbles backward out of the apartment as the gas dial now whines with an excessive noise, out of control. Back at the bank, Max Scott begins to worry that there may be a fire, and decides also to drive over to your place, and Sheila Wilson witnesses him leave. 9.30 a.m. Upstairs neighbor Linda Huggins is talking to her friend Lena Scalf on the phone, and though she never heard a smoke detector sounding that morning, she observes white smoke coming through her kitchen floor and along the east wall of her living room to the north by the kitchen door. She hears glass shatter outside and someone yelling fire. Linda tells Lena what she's heard and hangs up, calls for her cat, and tramples down the front steps. 9.31. Max Scott arrives from the north, gets out of his car, and immediately sees Linda running out of the house and onto the lawn. Max asks where David is, and Linda says she doesn't know. Linda only says there is a fire as she runs around the house to see flames pouring out of the door. David has taken the screen out of one of Justine's bedroom windows in the back of the house, and is using the same piece of metal from the storm door to break out the window located on the east side of the home, and somehow cuts his chin in the process. 9.32 Canton Police Officer Marty Brown arrives at the scene in the squad car. Max Scott shouts for him to call the fire department as he makes his way around the south side of the building from where the sound of breaking glass is emanating. As Officer Brown radios in, Max sees David pulling himself halfway into the east-facing window. He reaches as far in as he can but feels no one. And Max calls out your name, Donna, Donna, into the smoky abyss to no response. Upstairs, Jim Schlanigan wakes up on the couch, not from a smoke detector he would later state, but from the sound of breaking glass and the room filling with smoke. He grabs his jeans, coat, and shoes, and runs down the steps and out the rear entrance to see David breaking more windows. Jim grabs a shovel from the garage to break a window out of Pauline's apartment. David ironically shouts at Jim to stop, saying, You're going to make it worse. You're going to vent the fire. By now, the smoke had gotten worse, and with all the draft from the broken windows, though the flames had not yet reached Justine's back bedroom, they were indeed making their way near. 9.35. The Schaefers and a young man whom they are giving a ride back to Spoon River College see a large amount of smoke coming from the area of your home. Seeing it's the house where she babysits Justine, Carrie insists they pull into a nearby drive. Neighbor Timothy Owens hears a vehicle pull up in the driveway next to his home. He looks out the window and sees a gray Chevrolet Chevette with a primer fender and a young man and a woman get out of the car, run into the street, and begin flagging down traffic. Timothy then hears sirens, and finally, in a young man with a video camera, standing in the street. Assistant Chief Howard Dye has just finished conducting an inspection at Kroger on Chestnut, and he is heading north for Walmart when a call comes in over the radio about a house fire, with possible people trapped inside. The roads are so slick, it is difficult for him to turn around and keep the van on the road as he races back in the direction from which he had just come. 
9.36. Officer Brown assists Pauline from her front porch to the warmth of his squad car before being taken to the station and then later to a nursing home. David and Max run back toward the front of the house, see more flames coming out of your door, both still shouting your name. 9.38. Donnie sees smoke and hears sirens on his way from Usco to Rochelle's. As Donnie arrives, he sees Jacqueline's car parked out front, and he limps up the steps and into the house. As Rochelle greets him, she detects no odor of smoke or gas on Donnie. Donnie sees Jacqueline is obviously pissed off with him, and he changes the focus by mentioning what he had just heard and seen, and he thinks there is a fire over by the Wareco station. The three go outside and see smoke rising into the sky and the neighborhood air full of emergency sirens. Heading south on 1st Avenue, Assistant Chief Dye sees light smoke carrying in a strong wind to the south. As Kent firefighters arrive on the scene, David is scolded for fueling the fire, and David himself is angry as he feels like they are not moving fast enough to get inside, and he demands an asbestos jacket and oxygen so he can go inside himself and save you and Justine. Though he would later tell investigators that he had not actually entered your apartment that morning because he had never been inside and did not know the layout. David, in fact, began to give firefighters a layout of the apartment, telling the chief, if Donna and Justine are in the room with the huge dome of fire, they are already dead. 9.45 A half a block away, Assistant Chief Dye sees a fire engine parked in front of the house. The Canton crew and Fire Chief Slick Dorenzi. As Dye parks and approaches the house, Slick advises him that Lieutenant Stenko and Fire Investigator Shaw are trying to get into the back of the home and they will need more water. Dai takes the appropriate actions, giving orders, and the tone calls out to Copperas Creek, eight miles away in Banner, that the CFD is in need of more air packs and manpower. And within minutes, the seven-man crew leaves for Canton in a rescue van and pumper. 9.46 Chief Slick grabs an oxygen mask and goes around to the back where rescue efforts have focused, as David points them to that very back bedroom. Oxygen pumping, Slick's face behind a foggy mask. He climbs a ladder into Justine's bedroom window. The room is entirely engulfed by smoke, and Slick blindly disappears into the abyss, crawling around on all fours, guide rope clinched in a tight grasp, his only hope of escape back through the window to daylight and air. Precious air. Slick gives it his all, but feels no survivors anywhere in the room, and eventually is forced to retreat. 9.50 Fire Marshal Ted Anderson arrives, also scolding David for fueling the fire. Meanwhile, the crew of the ladder engine gets to work lifting a man high to the steep pitched roof with an axe in hand to be used to chop a chimney in the roof, a tactic to vent the fire upward so they can more safely enter your apartment through your front door. Linda Huggins' friend, Lena Scalf, arrives in her car, and Linda gets in with her cat out of the cold and strong winds. They park the car across the tracks in the gravel lot of the Brick Manufacturing Services building and watch the firefighters go to work as the team prepares to go head-on into the blaze. Across the street, Amelia Scott watches the event unfold in real time with another neighbor as the young man with the video camera stands in the street, capturing the tragedy for all time. Two blocks to the south, Rochelle checks Donnie's leg for an injury in their bedroom, but sees nothing. She also asks about the reddish-brown stains on his black coat, and Donnie says, Oh shit, that's transmission fluid, and removes the cloth coat before throwing it into the washing machine. Meanwhile, Rochelle's oldest daughter and her boyfriend are preparing to leave for a day of shopping in Peoria. Donnie lies down in bed and drifts off to sleep. 10 a.m. Rod awakes in his own bed. 
Back on the scene, the Copper's Creek volunteer crew, led by Captain Terry Harrison, arrives to see mostly black smoke. They throw on their air packs, and Lieutenant Stinko instructs Captain Harrison to go inside and give a hand to the CFD crew. His men follow Harrison through the doorway to see a detective taking pictures of the smoldering shell of your apartment, illuminated only by the flash, as it is still very smoky, although most of the fire is out by now. The inside of one of the walls still burns to the ceiling, and in Justine's back bedroom, the same southwest wall is still smoldering. For 30 minutes, Harrison shoots water into the wall, also tearing holes into the ceiling tile still intact, and assisted by Slick, shoots water into the ceiling. The plaster and lath remain intact to the north, and none of the tile ceilings have fallen throughout the apartment, but the men work fast, concerned the house may soon collapse, burying them all alive. 10-ish AM 30-ish year old David Nell awakes with no hangover in his parents' home where he is living. Ten fifteen, Rod crosses the street to his brother's house to pick up his laundry and quickly returns to finish getting ready for work at Office Max in Peoria. Ten twenty, as the smoke finally dissipates, the men see your nude body laying dead on the sofa bed. You lie close to the end of the bed with your legs drawn up, as if stretched out. They would drop toward the smoldering floor. Your arms are close at your side, hands blackened with char. Just to your left, a new doll on its back, with a chair covering its head and shoulders. But outside, David soon hears of the little charred body, and David cries out, Poor Justine. And as Max learns you've also been found, he goes into a profound disbelief, forgetting all about you snapping at him the day before. 10.30. Donnie wakes up to see the news on television. Meanwhile, out on the farm, John is finally having an excellent day grinding feed and driving the tractor around, which he loves to do when his mom, dad, and brother come out to the barn together, and John immediately wonders why they are all together like this, as they never come out to the farm together like this. They wave him over, and John hops off the tractor and tells them, looking up at the clearing sky, it's going to be a great day after all, as John can finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. But his dad says, Son, if you've ever had strength or self-control, now is the time. A terrible thing has happened at Donna's apartment in Canton. What? Are they okay? asked John. Are they in the hospital? What hospital? As his dad says, you need to pick up, son. And his mom, coroner's been called. And as John's eyes widen, he faints to the cold, hard ground. 10.45 The four Tompkins gather in a truck, but John's father, Ron, is not sure where to go. 11 a.m. They arrive at the Kenton Police Station, a wise decision on behalf of Ron, as the scene was not a place to be, not a place to be at all. And the acting chief of police quickly tells them what news he has offhand. It does not look good. No, it does not sound good at all. 11.15. Back at the no-good scene, the chair has been removed from the head of your child, so Captain Harris can assist Chief Slick in carrying Justine out in a body bag. Driving south down first, Terry Haynes and his dad have arrived back in town, and seeing smoke, they drive toward your place. They see your body bag carried out to the ambulance in the street as they pass. At the station, Fulton County Coroner John Pavley arrives, 
and discloses to John that his wife and child are dead, and along with you, all hope has died. 11.30. Scott Roop wakes up in the basement to hear Rod's truck running outside in the driveway, and the footsteps of Terry Haynes walking right into the house without knocking, as Rod is putting on his tie. Rod faces Terry in confusion, expecting anything other than for Terry to offer his hand for Rod to shake. And as Rod grasps it, Terry pulls him in for a hug and says into his ear, Donna and Justine are dead. Terry tells Rod what gruesome scene he had seen, as below, Scott listens intently, as Terry suggests, let's get together sometime and have coffee, and he leaves as hurriedly as he had arrived. As Scott comes upstairs, he finds Rod in a state of utter shock, while on the phone with someone at Office Max, calmly explaining that he will not be in today because his girlfriend and her daughter had just died in a fire. A few minutes later, the two climb into Rod's running truck, a 1979 Nissan 289ZX, and they head toward your smoldering home, not knowing what to expect. As they near the now well-taped-off fire scene, reality starts to sink in, and Rod grows emotional and cries. As they pass by, Rod tells Scott that you recently received an upsetting letter from an aunt. Meanwhile, in the parking lot just across the tracks, David talks to Linda and Lena, he tells them that he occasionally comes over to babysit for Justine, but David would go on to tell investigators that he was not sure if he had a key, though the bank certainly did, though both upstairs neighbors had seen David come and go freely, in and out, on his own. 12 noon. Nine miles to the west, in a small dot on the map called Fayette, Postal Inspector Carl Williams, Postal Inspector Carl Williams, arrives at the post office to see John Tompkins and his mom sitting in a truck, with John's dad Ron, standing at the driver's side window. The door is open, John's leg is kicked out, and he is dressed in chore clothes. Seeing John in tears, Carl asks, Everything okay? Ron responds, John has had a bad day. Found out his wife and daughter died in a fire. 1 p.m. Ensuring the building is safe from collapse, investigators continue to document the scene. 1.30. Rochelle's oldest daughter and her boyfriend return home from Peoria to find Donnie glued to the television screen. As they settle in, Donnie says that he knows the woman who died in the fire, that he had sold you a sofa bed. On scene, Fire Marshal Ted Anderson and Fire Investigator Shaw begin interviewing David, asking him the woman's name and if she smokes. David says you, but no, you do not smoke, at least not that he has ever seen. They ask David to run through the events leading up to the discovery of the fire this morning. David says that after breaking the window in the door, he opened it to encounter very thick smoke and crackling, and that he then took two daring steps inside, where he observed a huge, very bright, exceptionally red glowing dome four to five feet from the floor, upgraded from the actual three to four. The investigators note David's elaborate story, each making eyes, before asking him how it was possible without a backdraft wiping him off this planet. David's statement of stepping two feet inside would haunt David for quite some time. He says he is unsure if you had a smoke detector, seemingly unaware, that was probably something he should have been aware of. He says things have been looking up for you, and that you have been looking forward to the upcoming raise, that same raise David had been putting off and putting off for quite some time. No, David says, he doesn't think you have been dating anyone, but there is probably no closer friend to you at the bank than himself. Anderson takes note as David rambles on about his brother's own house, which had burnt down in Monmouth last year. Three PM. As news trickles back to the bank, your co-workers begin speculating 
you have committed suicide. And at the Elks Lodge, Terry spreads gossip that you had been romantically involved with both David and Max Scott. 4 p.m. After being interviewed, David returns to the bank and collapses into Hazel Brown's desk chair. He smells of smoke, his hair is singed, and his new wool coat is burnt, which drives him nuts. And as people gather around to hear what David had seen, he tells them his story again and again and again, and down in his basement office, yet again. It is essential to take note that it was at this moment, if you would go on to claim that David had stated that he had actually laid eyes on you and Justine, sprawled out on the sofa bed, when he had taken those two daring steps inside. 5 p.m. The bank closes for the day. 6 p.m. Max Scott invites a shaken up David over to his home to sit calmly with him and his wife, silent in the dark, out on the porch in the cold early winter night, where David stares at an empty bird feeder and can no longer find the words. 7 p.m. Donnie calls up Nell to chat him up and what went down after leaving him and his parents earlier that morning. The flat tire, the smoke, the sirens, the round-the-clock television news, and the sofa bed they had delivered to you, and the glow of the big lighter on that dark Halloween night. 8 p.m. Family friend of the Tompkins, Steve Nelson, has stopped by to offer his condolences when John gets emotional, and repeats again and again, I hope Donna didn't hurt herself and my little girl. Ten PM. Floodlights set up, thoroughly taped off. Auxiliary officers keep watch over the scene. Inside your apartment, investigators work late into the night, tagging and bagging any evidence they find. Thus far, on the kitchen sink, next to your melted automatic coffee machine, a gold nineteen thirty eight high school class ring and a Seikyo watch, jewelry, which you never took off. In the trash, a few empty cans of beer. Budweiser, and Bush. And in a drawer filled to the brim, a tall stack of love letters, some in haste, others in zest, but each adorned in that same exact manner. Dear Donna, I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. 
This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.